patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. and welcome to another episode of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tyloski. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. Hope you're having a wonderful Labor Day weekend. And I am just so thrilled to have another guest for our September 2022 interview episode. Before we get to our episode, make sure to subscribe to Friends and Fellow Citizens if you haven't already. Check out our website, shermantyloski.com. Links down in the show notes below to learn more about how to subscribe to our email list, to our Patreon, and this is a great opportunity to thank our Patreon supporters once again. We have passed the two-year mark of Friends of Fellow Citizens at the end of August. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal milestone, and we've got a lot more content for all of you, so make sure to stay tuned. Today's guest is James Olson. Olson is a career officer in the Directorate of Operations of the Central Intelligence Agency, serving mostly overseas in clandestine operations. He served as the Chief of Counterintelligence at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. He had overseas assignments in the USSR, Austria, and Mexico, and speaks multiple foreign languages, including French, German, Russian, and Spanish. He is the recipient of the Intelligence Medal of Merit, the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, the Counterintelligence Excellence Medal, the Donovan Award, and several Distinguished Achievement Awards. He was also awarded the Silver Star Award at the Bush School of Government Public Service for Excellence in Teaching. He was assigned by the CIA to the George Bush School of Government Public Service in College Station, Texas, as an officer in residence in December 1997. He has taught courses on intelligence, counterintelligence, and national security, and is a frequent guest lecturer at other courses, conferences, and symposia. He was appointed a permanent faculty member of the Bush School in August 2000 and is now serving as a professor of the practice. He is also the author of The Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence, Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. We will certainly be discussing his books later on in this episode, but like for all of the longer interview episodes, I divided this into two parts, so make sure to check out part two. This is part one. Check out part two of our episode. The link is down in the show notes below. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy to welcome our special guest this week, Mr. Jim Olson, uh, to come on to our program to speak about some many, many incredible topics. Jim, I want to really, really thank you so much for coming on to Friends of Fellow Citizens today. Well, you're most welcome, Sherman. It's great to see you again. Well, this is a very, very relevant topic when we speak about intelligence. This certainly, I believe that there is going to be an increase in interest on intelligence and the role of intelligence in American politics and policymaking. Before we get to some of those issues, Jim, uh, would you mind introducing a bit more about yourself and how you got started in your career at the CIA? Sure, I'll be glad to do that. I'm from Iowa originally, small town, 
I went to the University of Iowa, studied mathematics and economics. I don't know why, but uh, fortunately, I didn't have to go into that field because when I graduated, the United States Navy was waiting for me. I took a commission in the Navy. I served for four years aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates. Loved the Navy. I actually thought about staying in, but finally decided I wanted to go back home to Iowa. So I left the Navy. I applied for law school. The University of Iowa was accepted. And that was my dream at the time. I wanted to get my law degree and practice law in a small county seat town in Iowa. I thought that'd be a nice lifestyle. Find a nice Iowa girl, settle down, raise a family, and serve my community in one way or another. And I was on track for that. I was in my last year of law school. I was sitting in my dormitory room in Iowa City when the phone rang. And the voice on the phone said, Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. And that was the CIA calling. Uh, not sure how they found me. They must have spotters. But uh, that was the beginning of a lengthy process of secret trips to Washington, meetings in safe houses, and very intensive interviews, aptitude testing, psychological screening, medical exam, background investigation, and then a whole series of polygraph exams on every act, aspect of my background and personal life. And that was brutal. It was uh, very, very difficult, but somehow I survived all that. And in due course was offered a position in the CIA's clandestine service, the Directorate of Operations, the undercover espionage and covert action arm of the CIA. So it's kind of funny, Sherman, when I accepted the offer, I did it with the idea, I'm going to do this for a couple of years. It sounds kind of interesting. But after two or three years, I'm coming back to Iowa and pursuing that original plan that I had. Well, it didn't work out that way because it, <laughs> it didn't take me long once I got to the CIA to realize that's where I belong. It was exciting. It was important work. I was dealing with high quality people. I met my future wife there. And so there was no turning back. And when I look back on it now, I feel just so fortunate to have had the opportunity to serve in the CIA. And my wife and I served together undercover in the CIA for 31 years. That's an incredible story, Jim. And I, I certainly recall those early times when we had our classes back a few years ago in the Bush School, how much you appreciated that know that switch in the tracks when you thought you were going on one track and the switch has changed and you went on a path that you would never look back on very much. I think that's true for a lot of us, uh, Sherman. We don't really know, do we, how it's all going to turn out. Uh, you can't overly plan because it's probably not going to work out that way. So you just have to prepare yourself for opportunities as they come along. And uh, my great opportunity did come along. Very, very glad that it did. Before you received that mysterious call, and it's it's interesting how it's still a bit of a mystery to yourself on how, on how someone was able to get a hold of you. How did your expectations of the CIA change compared to before you received that call? In in the sense of what, how did you view the CIA before, and how did your career in the CIA affects the way you see the CIA and its role in intelligence. To tell you the truth, when 
the CIA interviewers first contacted me, I barely knew what the CIA was. You know, I'm out in Iowa. It was not really relevant to us out there. And uh, so I was really taken aback. I had kind of a false image of the CIA as kind of a swashbuckling James Bond kind of thing. <laughs> but that's not what it turned out to be. Uh, there was some of that because we did have a lot of excitement, uh, some risk, some danger in our careers. But uh, it was much more serious than I'd imagined as far as our mission was concerned. And that's what really captured me, I think, as making this my life's work. Uh, the mission of the CIA to protect the American people. Uh, the intelligence community of the United States government has a noble function to perform. We are the early warning system. We're the front line of defense. And when I produced intelligence in my career that saved American lives or went to the president's desk or changed the course of some international negotiation, I can't begin to describe the exhilaration I felt that I had had the opportunity to contribute to something that important. Very well said. I, I want to first now get to a bit about the early history of U.S. intelligence. I don't believe that we can ever fully start discussing intelligence without mentioning the namesake of Washington's farewell address, George Washington himself. And I would like to obviously fast forward to a different time period, Jim, but we don't often think about Washington, George Washington and intelligence put together. But how important was George Washington in as just establishing the first known intelligence unit and strategy during the American Revolutionary War? I think George Washington was vital to the eventual evolution of United States intelligence. George Washington was way ahead of his time in his understanding of intelligence and how he used intelligence, very sophisticated. His successors, I'm sorry to say, did not share that same understanding of the importance of intelligence. In fact, they were kind of caught up with the idea that what we spies do is somehow not quite honorable. It's not quite American to sneak around and steal secrets and to do all these nefarious things that people assume that we do. And in some cases, we, of course, do do. But George Washington had a lot of respect for intelligence. He supported it. He actually was a spy master himself. Some of the operations that you're familiar with that uh, George Washington's era uh, gave to us were the direct response of tasking and guidance that Washington himself performed. So we, we owe him a lot. And uh, I think above all, what we owe George Washington is that sense that what we do is important for the country and that it's an honorable way to serve our country. Indeed. And I, you know, I think about the story that you mentioned, uh, Jim, about uh, Nathan Hale. And of, while we won't get too much into detail about Nathan Hale, can you just briefly tell us why the statue of Nathan Hale matters so much uh, uh, as it's standing outside of the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia? He's one of our heroes. He is someone we admire greatly. 
Some people think that's a bit unusual because Nathan Hale was a failed spy. He was arrested. He was executed, as you know. But his commitment, his dedication, his patriotism really strikes a chord with all of us who tried to follow in his footsteps. And when Nathan Hale was captured by the British and was facing hanging, as was the fate of spies, without any trial, without any consolation of any kind, he uttered those immortal words, my only regret is I have but one life to lose for my country. And uh, that's kind of the marching orders that we give ourselves, that we are prepared to sacrifice for our country in any way that's required. So that statue of Nathan Hale standing there, 21 years old, a recent college graduate, standing there with his arms tied behind his back and the noose around his neck um, and uttering those unforgettable words, it, it is incredibly inspirational for us. I'm a bit of a Nathan Hale junkie. And I've been to every known Nathan Hale site in the country, the schoolhouse where he taught in Connecticut, uh, the place where he was born, the place where he was captured, we believe, on Manhattan, where we believe he was executed. I've been to all those places and had my picture taken all those places. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer of Nathan Hale. Indeed. What what an incredible calling that he had while it's obviously very sad to read about how he tragically was executed, but I, I think very fondly of the, the for one of those first lessons that you taught uh, Jim about George Washington and Nathan Hale. Yes, and this ties in been into the other first lesson, which surprised me personally, Jim, when I first read about. It. I think we all, as students of national security at the time at the Bush School. We all have this feeling, as you said earlier, about this idea of a James Bond sort of beginning about, about some of those uh, amazing intelligence heroes. And we certainly cover those. But the first lesson wasn't about that. It was about a gentleman who I never heard of before, but one who I will admit still haunts me <laughs> to this day, not just not just because of the of the impact that he had on counterintelligence strategy in the U.S., uh, but also just how it reverberated in almost an eerie way of uh, what had come through in the CIA for, uh, during the 60s and 70s and beyond. Can What can you share about who this gentleman is and what he did that was so influential but also very damaging on counterintelligence and the early days of the Cold War? You're talking about James Jesus Angleton, Sherman. And I think that you accurately described how damaging he was to the intelligence profession and specifically to the subspecialty of counterintelligence, which was my first love in this business. James Jesus Angleton had a distinguished early career in the Office of Strategic Services. He served in England and in Italy honorably. He was one of the first true counterintelligence officers in U.S. intelligence. He learned his trade during World War II. After World War II, as many in the Office of Strategic Services did, he migrated over to the new CIA, which was established in 1947. 
And at the CIA, he also pursued counterintelligence. And he carved out a niche for himself there where he built this cadre of like-minded people to protect the United States from its foreign enemies in the intelligence world. And I followed him very closely. I actually met the man early on in my career and can attest to the fact that he fell prey to an occupational hazard in counterintelligence, and that's paranoia, conspiracy theories, overthinking things, double thinking things. And as a result, he lost touch, in my opinion, with reality. And he became a fanatic. He became someone who really lost sight of the reality of the world situation. As a result, his belief that the Russians were controlling everything, that the KGB was 10 feet tall, that the United States government was penetrated, the CIA was penetrated, he got into a defensive mindset that really prevented us from having any offensive operations. So James E. Zangleton and his followers had the idea that since everything is controlled, we will not allow them to operate against us. So he shut us down. His uh, thinking was, I'm too smart to fall for their deceptions. He thought that every Russian that we would recruit as a source was controlled by the KGB, was a double, was feeding us disinformation. So we had no real operations against the Soviet Union to collect intelligence on our main adversary from 20 critical years of the Cold War because Angleton ruled supreme. He was chief of counterintelligence at the CIA from 1954 until 1974 when we mercifully were able to ease him out. But in that time period, counterintelligence was chasing ghosts. It was really reduced to a non-productive part of our business. And that's a shame because we needed good counterintelligence. Uh, but he was uh, making it useless and even more damaging, preventing us from running operations. When he finally left and I took over a couple uh, years later, uh, we were shocked to find all of these potential operations against the Soviet Union that we had in our files, walk-ins, volunteers, potential recruitments, technical operations that Angleton had killed because he assumed that they would be controlled from the beginning. Uh, a terrible waste of opportunity at a time when we needed good intelligence on our made adversary. Jim, as you're describing the to describing Angleton, that was what really shocked me, the first lesson. It almost I, I felt at that time like, whoa, what what is happening? And now that I look back on that, I thought it was a very valuable first lesson because right away you understand all the students I felt like the whole room understood that this is this is not a game. This is a serious business. And what's incredible is how there's this one, only one man's delusions can affect entire organization like that. And that's what's so, so disturbing. It's so true. 
so true. And of course, the lesson is that we can never allow that to happen again. In fact, when I took over counterintelligence, Sherman, one of the first things I did was to establish a training course for all of our counterintelligence officers. And you know what I call that course? I call it the ANA course. Angleton never again. And I drove that point home that good counterintelligence has to keep a balance, has to stay in touch with the real world, cannot chase phantoms because the work we do is so important. Uh, also, I believe that people need to leave counterintelligence from time to time to kind of get their bearings back because it is true. And I saw it. A steady diet of counterintelligence living in that murky world, that labyrinth, can begin to play games with your mind. And we have to avoid that. So I wanted my officers to rotate out every couple of years to recharge their batteries, to ventilate their minds, then come back as even better counterintelligence officers. That was so important for you, to, I think, believe to to do that reset to teach those lessons. And reminds me of, I believe, I can't remember if it was Angleton who said it himself, which is which would be kind of odd, but you described counterintelligence as a hall of mirrors and the, the idea that you couldn't see that what was real, what was a reflection. And that imagery, which I guess to, to his credit in that instance, kind of imagine, puts itself into that world of how dangerous of a, of a world it is to, to venture yourself. Well, the actual quote, Sherman, was a wilderness of mirrors. And you're correct that it was a phrase coined by Angleton himself, who had kind of a poetic bent to him. He had written some poetry himself, and he described it accurately because it is a, a bunch of mazes and uh, mirrors that uh, lead you in the wrong direction. So that's a very, very apt description of that world that Angleton lived in and where we all lived in. But hopefully we were able to navigate ourselves through that wilderness of mirrors uh, better than Angleton did. The one last thing I'd like to touch upon is another gentleman who I, I to this day, I still can't believe that this is a part of American history, but it has to be told. We can't, we can't just shy away from things that we don't want to hear about. Uh, Jim, can you tell us and share with the audience about a young man named Yuri Nosenko and why he is so critical to our understanding of not just Angleton, but also going back to what you believe was so important with the ANA to avoid this horrific episode that happened in the 60s. Well, Yuri Nosenko was probably the most egregious, the cruelest abuses that we attribute to Angleton. Yuri Nosenko was a KGB officer. He volunteered his services to the CIA in Geneva back in the early 1960s. And that was a time when Angleton ruled supreme. And of course, any Russian who's volunteers his services, by definition at that time, had to be a dangle, had to be controlled, had to be run against us. And so we brought Nisenko over to the United States with the idea of revealing him for what he was, a fraud, a double. And Angleton and his team decided that they needed to break him because Nisenko was insisting that he was bona fide. 
he had some valuable information. Angleton dismissed all that as feed material. And they treated this man horribly, including putting him in isolation with no court orders, no oversight whatsoever, and grilling him, abusing him, sleep deprivation, playing with his diet, constant interrogations, and the man refused to break, which infuriated Angleton. And so they hit him very, very hard. And finally, after a couple of years of this horrendous treatment, cooler heads prevailed and asserted themselves and rescued Angleton's prisoner from the conditions that he was living under. Yuri Nisenko, I believe, without any doubt whatsoever, was a genuine defector, a good man, uh, someone who was volunteering his services to the United States in good faith. Uh, that's still a subject of some controversy because there's still some Angletonians around, some fundamentalists, we call them, who believe that Nisenko was, in fact, a bad defector. But I think that's nonsense. I think that the case is absolutely compelling, incontrovertible. Yuri Nisenko was a valid defector, and what Angleton did to him was inexcusable. It, that story still resonates to me, Jim, because it reemphasizes the importance of due diligence and not to be, once again, going down the, through the wilderness of mirrors and not being able to get out. And this, I, I really love the story of how, of how we learned so much about Nosenko through a film that we watched in class. And it, it's just, it's still one of my most memorable times from, from the class learning about Nosenko and not just him, but, but so many other people who we, who we were able to, uh, to have on our, on our side in that cold war, but also ma- many that whom we lost. And this does go into two other cases. Now there's so many out there, but I like to transition to one, our first case study, uh, to look at counterintelligence through the lens of a, a defector. Um, Jim, tell us about who Edward Lee Howard was and why his case was so significant to our understanding of the, the many, many gaps that we still had yet to fill uh, in our counterintelligence strategy. I'm glad you bring up Edward Lee Howard because there are so many learning points that we can take from that case. Edward Lee Howard was a young CIA officer. He had served in the Peace Corps before coming to the CIA, and he spoke good Spanish. He was bright. He had good interpersonal skills. We recruited him despite knowing that he had had a drug history in Peru. He assured us, and this was verified on the polygraph, that he was no longer using. We liked his qualifications, so we hired him. Went down, he went down to the farm, our training facility, and excelled in operational tradecraft. Uh, we brought him up and taught him Russian. And he was a gifted linguist. He learned uh, good Russian. The idea that we had for Edward Lee Howard 
was to send him out to Moscow under deep cover to handle some of the recruited sources that we had. I think it was a good concept. And Eddie and his wife, Mary, went through our denied area training class, which is part of what we call the pipeline preparation for an assignment in Moscow. It's the same training that my wife, Meredith, and I went through before our assignment to Moscow. It's tough. Not every couple makes it, but Eddie and Mary did well. They sailed through. I was watching all of this and was part of the selection process. I was convinced, Sherman, we had a winner. Uh, We liked Mary. She was a good support. We recruited hers for operational purposes as well. They're just about ready to get on the plane to fly to Moscow. But just a second. One last thing. An unexpected, unannounced, unanticipated polygraph exam. And Mary did great on hers. Eddie bombed his. And it turned out on the polygraph that he was using drugs currently, that he was abusing alcohol. He'd been involved in some other activities that we thought raised questions about his reliability. All this came out on the polygraph. And it was so serious when we added it all up, the drugs, the alcohol, the petty theft, and other things. We decided we didn't have a choice. And so we not only canceled their assignment to Moscow on reliability grounds, we fired him. And we did it without a lot of ceremony. In retrospect, we might have done a better job of kind of easing him out. But we forced him out, and he and Mary and their infant child went back to New Mexico. He got a job in the state government down there. But most of all, he just brooded. He was bitter. He was angry at the CIA and the United States government for having, as he saw it, ruined his life. He was abusing alcohol down there. He got in bar fights. He got arrested. He was spiraling out of control. Um, So we sent uh, people down to talk to him. We paid for him to have uh, psychiatric counseling, but too little too late because Edward Lee Howard wanted revenge. He had been briefed on our operations in Moscow because as someone under deep cover, he might be called upon to handle any operation that we had. Who handled an operation in Moscow was really a function of who could get free of surveillance, who could break free from the KGB. And we were hopeful that Eddie could do that. So he knew all of our operations across the board. And in his quest for vengeance, he made contact with the KGB and started revealing the identity of these Russians who were secretly working for the CIA. So what was he doing, Sherman? He was consigning them to arrest and execution, also wiping us out in terms of our operations in Moscow. Uh, It was awful. And uh, I can't begin to describe the anguish we felt as we started losing these, these cases, many cases, courageous Russians who put their lives in our hands. It wasn't until Arkady Narchenko uh, defected uh, to the United States from Rome, a KGB officer, that uh, we learned from him that 
the CIA was in contact with a disgruntled former CIA officer. He didn't know the name. He only knew the code name. But there could be no doubt in our mind who it was. It had to be Eddie. And so the, the FBI had to be brief because that was an allegation, of course, of a serious crime. And the FBI went down to New Mexico, put him under surveillance. Uh, I'm a great fan of the FBI, but they bungled it because Eddie was well-trained in surveillance detection. And we had told the FBI that, but Eddie quickly made their surveillance and they used a technique we had trained him in called Jack in the Box with Mary's help to evade FBI surveillance and to escape to Russia. Uh, and they put him up in a nice dacha country home outside Moscow and uh, gave him the benefit of everything that they could offer in terms of food and liquor, a lot of it, a lot of other benefits I won't go into. And so he's out there as a defector, someone who betrayed his country. Mary wanted no part of living in Russia uh, with their son. So she would travel periodically, but uh, Eddie, uh, was condemned to live out his life in, in the communist world. Uh, I used to tell my students, Sherman, I probably told you when you were in the class that uh, one day you know, we would find out that Edward Lee Howard had died of some alcohol-related disease in some shabby Moscow hospital. But, of course, it's not the way it turned out. Uh, the Russians released the news that Edward Lee Howard, their dear friend, the former American spy, had died of a fall down the back stairs of a dacha and broken his neck. Now, Sherman, if you believe that, I failed you in that class. <laughs> because there's no doubt what happened. Uh, Putin just got tired of supporting this, this pathetic American drunken slob wanted the dacha for someone else and uh, decided on a Russian Putinesque solution to his problem. <laughs> As I, I, I can't remember who, who said it, but he was the useful idiot. And then when he yeah. lost his usefulness, he, he got yeah. even totalitarians yeah. need to evaluate the, their, their options on whether to keep someone. I would uh, caution uh, Edward Snowden to be careful walking down steps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, because his usefulness may be timed out also yeah. that's right it it just makes makes you wonder how those standards were all of a sudden just abandoned when and this and this goes brought back to a broader point i think maybe a little bit outside of intelligence for now but i believe that when a society or an organization set allows this kind of behavior to happen when they allow someone to be be just to succumb to alcoholism to drug use and to ha not have anyone to be able to at the very minimum bring them to some kind of aid but to just allow them to go ramp on this it, it it's insanity we learned a lot from the howard debacle we learned that we probably shouldn't have hired him in the first place he was damaged goods already he was not supervised properly. When we did the damage assessment, there were a lot of people around Edward Lee Howard who knew that he was drinking too much, who knew that he was talking too much, that he was unreliable. We also didn't 
terminate him properly. We should have done it in a way that uh, allowed him to preserve some self-respect. We should have eased his landing when we let him go. So we improved in all those areas. But I think the one that is most disturbing to me now is that we, I believe, have admitted people into the clandestine service who I think should probably not have met our standards. You know, society has evolved. And when my wife Meredith and I joined the CIA, for example, even a single use of a controlled substance under any circumstances was disqualifying. We can't recruit to that standard anymore because the world has changed. So we look at what you've used under what circumstances, how recently, whether you're ever dealt or not. We look at all the circumstances and we make a judgment of whether or not we can trust you despite your mistakes of the past. And unfortunately, in some cases, I think we are waiving behaviors, not only in the drug area, but in other areas that come back and hurt us later on. I'm a strong believer that character is a constant. And if you've shown through past activities that you have a weakness in your character, that weakness is going to resurface later on at the worst time and the worst circumstances. And we don't have to settle for people who have questionable characters. We don't have to settle for people who have baggage that uh, that some people do coming in. So I'd like to see us return to uh, tighter standards in whom we bring into the service. I wholeheartedly agree. And I believe that the standards that we set, whether it's voters or politicians or case officers, these these will matter whether we want to admit it or not. These are going to matter for, for those who are incoming, who are looking for the organization that they want, they want to be in. It's going to matter on the operations and on the culture of, of a particular organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to move on to our second case, Jim, and this one is also particularly, particularly hits hard because you too also knew this man for, for, for quite a while and you trusted him and then that all changed. So tell us about Rick Ames and why he, in his case, is also so relevant to our understanding of the CIA and of counterintelligence. I'll be happy to talk about uh, Aldrich Rick Ames Sherman, but it's going to be hard for me to keep calm because I do feel very, very strongly about this. I first met Rick Ames way back in the mid-1970s when I was handling a KGB officer up in New York who was undercover out of the United Nations. And Rick Ames was, as a CI officer, serving in our New York City station. He was my inside contact. He was the person who set up the safe house for my meetings, made certain that it was stocked with food and liquor, cleaned up afterwards, took custody of the classified material that was generated and ensured it went into safekeeping. In short, he was an odd jobs kind of person. He was not a high performer in terms of the clandestine service. After New York, Rick 
went to Mexico City. Rick, as a substandard employee, was not going to be competitive across the board in the clandestine service for promotion for assignments. So he identified a place where he could compete because there was no real competition, because good people did not go there. And where did where was that? Counterintelligence. Because Angleton had destroyed the reputation of counterintelligence to the point that our best officers wanted to go nowhere near it. When I joined the CI, the word was out, don't go to counterintelligence. And Rick decided that's going to be his climb up the ladder. And so he went down to Mexico City to fill a counterintelligence position that nobody else wanted. And down there, he was given some chicken feed cases, frankly, because you couldn't trust Rick with a real case, an important case. Uh, So this case that he was handling, among a few others, was of a Colombian female diplomat whom we'd recruited as what we call an access agent. We weren't really interested in her access as a cultural attache in the Colombian embassy. We were interested in her because as a Latin American diplomat, she could circulate in Latin American diplomatic circles, including, of course, the Cubans. And we Americans would not be able to move in that same crowd because the Cubans would not associate with Americans. And so this woman whose name was... um, Rosario, right? Rosario. Rosario. Rosario uh, did some low-level, moderately valuable uh, service for us in spotting and assessing Cubans and others. Uh, But in the process of Rick's handling of this nothing case, uh, they became intimate. And, of course, that was a terrible violation of a strict CI regulation. You cannot have a romantic relationship between a CI, CI officer and one of his or her agents. That is absolutely forbidden. And it is a, an offense that can lead to your termination from the service. service. Rick later claimed that he and Rosario had not become romantic until after we had terminated her, which I think was a very uh, transparent fiction. Uh, And it gets worse because Rick was married. His wife had stayed in New York. He was down there on his own. And when he was reassigned from Mexico City back to CIA headquarters, he took Rosario with him. And when his divorce was finally final, they got married. So here they are, Rick and Rosario Ames, up in Washington. Rick stays in counterintelligence, again, because it's it's an easy path to get into without the competition that he would see elsewhere. And he had a job as overseeing, from a counterintelligence standpoint, our Russian operations. Think about that. Someone who was such a poor performer, kind of given the keys to the kingdom, kind of the holy of holies, are Russian operations. And so he would go down and look at the files, uh, analyze it from a counterintelligence standpoint, and in the process, learn the identities of all these people. Uh, Rosario is a nag. 
She wants a higher standard of living that Rick as a terminal, mid-level CI officer uh, cannot provide her. And she is constantly harassing them for more and more. And he finally gives in to their nagging, her nagging. And he knew that he had a way to make a lot of money quickly by selling out. And so he went to the Russians and began revealing the identities of these Russian assets. Similar to what Howard had done, but much worse because Rick had access to a much wider range of, of our assets at that time. Uh, and one by one, we lose them. Uh, it got to the point, Sherman, where I hated to go into the office in the morning because I was afraid another cable would come in from the field saying that one of our recruited Russians had not shown up for a meeting, had been mysteriously recalled back to Moscow, had not made a signal that we had expected from him uh, because they were being ro rolled up uh, and many of them were executed. Um, I cannot imagine a lower form of human life than someone like Rick Ames, who would not only betray our country, and become a traitor to our country, betray all of us in the CIA who considered him colleagues, but to be a murderer at the same time, which he was. Uh, I think of Rick every day. Uh, he was arrested and uh, serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. I think he's probably the worst spy our country's ever produced in terms of the, the damage that he did. Not only in human terms, these poor Russians who lost their lives because of his treachery, but also because of the incredible intelligence that we lost uh, by having these uh, assets arrested and executed. What happened was, is that after we got rid of Angleton in 1974, we discovered that we're pretty good at recruiting Russians. And so from 1975, we started building this incredible stable of assets, Russians, who were providing us with incredible intelligence from inside the Kremlin, from all around Russia, uh, from inside the intelligence services, from inside the military. Those were the golden years of Moscow station operations. And Meredith and I served in Moscow during those years. And it was pretty amazing stuff to realize what we were able to do in terms of uh, handling sources inside Russia, providing us with this intelligence. So it just brought into perspective even more how much damage uh, that Angleton had done because he had prevented us from having that that bonanza of intelligence sources that we were capable, capable of recruiting and, and handling inside Moscow. Uh, but we lost them all. And uh, it was uh, the worst year of my life, 1985, when uh, Rick did his dirty work. And we lost all those uh, those Russians. He wiped us out. Um, so he's a despicable human being. Um, there were people who wanted the death penalty uh, for Rick Ames, but uh, that was hard to, to do because executing a spy in peacetime is something we have not traditionally done. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you sharing this story because I know it, it's – incredibly hard for you personally because of the, the, the just the, the severity of, and, and severity is not even a, even a good enough term to 
describe the damage. And I'd like to ask, when you were chief of counterintelligence at that time, and you were working with your colleagues, you're working with officers on, on all, in all different levels, what were some of the biggest lessons and actions that you took from Everly Howard and Rick Eames um, as you were as you reflect on that time uh, when you were a critical leader during such a uh, challenging time for the CIA? I think my most important takeaway, Sherman, was realization of how poor our counterintelligence had become. It was a wasteland. Our best people weren't there because even after Angleton left, Good people were still staying away from counterintelligence because of the reputation that he had created. We were doing a terrible job of counterintelligence. I attribute the ability of people like Howard and Ames to betray us to the fact that our counterintelligence was so weak. It was incompetent. Uh, It should not have taken us that long to figure out why we lost all of those assets in 1985. So we needed to rebuild it. We needed to rehabilitate counterintelligence as a career field inside the CIA and elsewhere. And that took some time. And we established a center of counterintelligence. And little by little, we were able to bring people into it from other disciplines. A center, by definition, is drawing people from other components to bring their specialized expertise to apply against the counterintelligence problem. It was a formula that worked beautifully. So we got analysts from the director of intelligence. We got security people from the office of security. We got case officers, of course, from the director of operations. We got people from all around the community, from the FBI, NSA. We brought them all together. The naysayers said, it's never never gonna work. You're all from different cultures. You've got turf wars, you won't get along. Nonsense. We did a really good job of, I think, breaking the code and creating a chemistry where all these different pieces could come together. So little by little, I think that we did a good job of restoring counterintelligence to the role that it should have had all along. So that's, I think, the most important thing that I believe we accomplished. And I think it's continued to this day. But I will say that when the Soviet Union fell in 1991, there was this rush to reallocate resources away from the evil empire into other fields. And that was defensible because we needed to look at uh, counterterrorism, counterproliferation, the rogue nations, North Korea, Iran, Cuba. But all too often, unfortunately, to repopulate those fields, to strengthen those fields, we stole resources from counterintelligence. Uh, And so we had a real battle on our hands to keep our counterintelligence capabilities at the level that we needed. And of course, we realized that, first of all, the Russians have not gone away. That threat has not disappeared. But then, of course, the Chinese emerged as the number one counterintelligence threat to our country. And to this day, I don't think we have enough resources in counterintelligence uh, 
to counter the massive assault that we're receiving from from China uh, and throwing in the Russians and uh, the Iranians and all the other countries that operate against us. But there's no doubt in my mind, Sherman, that the future in counterintelligence is China. If I could start my career all over again, and I would love to, and I tell my students this, I probably told you this, that I would try to get into the CIA's China program. I would learn Mandarin. I'd become a Chinese counterintelligence officer, and my career would be made because that's the future. The Chinese are not going to go away. And what they're doing inside our country already is outrageous. They're stealing our secrets. They're suborning our citizens. They're uh, stealing our technology. They're hacking into our databases. They're infiltrating our universities. They're getting into our high-tech corporations. Uh, we've never seen anything like it. And so that's uh, the thing that keeps us all awake at night. You ask any counterintelligence professional, the FBI, the CIA, anywhere around the community, or even among our allied friends, uh, the Canadians, the uh, Australians, uh, the British, Germans, the French, what their number one counterintelligence concern is, they'll all say the same thing. It's China, 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 no question about it. This is why it's so important, I believe, to have your story told, Jim, about your experiences, about learning about these case studies. Um, I remember my case study was about Jack Dunlap, a very low-level bureaucrat who drove his supervisor's car, essentially. That's kind of how you could wrap sum up his career, pretty much. But he had all that access to secret documents. And I think comparatively, compared to his position, it was massive, that difference of access to information and what he was supposed to do in his, in his job. I miss those good old days, Sherman, when the damage that a spy like Dunlop and others could do was kind of limited to the documents that they could steal. They could pick up a few things, stick them inside their shirt, or in Dunlop's case, just uh, carry them out in a bag. Today, of course, spies who want to do harm to our country can bring out massive amounts of intelligence on disks, uh, on flash drives. Uh, and so the task of counterintelligence has been magnified tremendously in terms of the damage that we're trying to prevent, uh, let alone the hacking into our databases, where they can download terabytes of data that are very harmful to our country. Counterintelligence is in a new age, and it is uh, shocking how much damage a spy can do today. And that'll wrap up our first part of our conversation with Jim Olson. I hope you're enjoying this conversation so, so far. Make sure to check out part two down in the show notes below to continue the conversation. <laughs>